Let us go and uh, look at this, like I said, this final sermon in the series of, uh, on the life of David for now and uh, before we start our Advent series next week. So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 20 today. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 20, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Second Samuel chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's all right, because we'll have the words on the screens next to me, so you'll be able to, be able to follow along there. All right. Well, if we're all ready, then we'll go ahead and read in Second Samuel chapter 10. Like I said, I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Now a wicked man a Benjaminite named Sheba, son of Bigri, happened to be there. He blew the ram's horn and shouted, We have no portion in David, no inheritance in Jesse's son. Each man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, son of Bigri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan all the way to Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. When David came to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and placed them under guard. He provided for them, but he was not intimate with them. They were confined until the day of their death, living as widows. The king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to me within three days and be here yourself. Amasa went to summon Judah, but he took longer than the time allotted him. So David said to Abishai, Sheba son of Bigri will do more harm to us than Absalom. Take your Lord's soldiers and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and elude us. So Joab's men, the Carathites, and the Pelathites, and all the warriors marched out under Abishai's command. They left Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. They were at the great stone in Gibeon when Amasa joined them. Joab was wearing his uniform over it, and there was a belt around his waist, with a sword in its sheath. As he approached, the sword fell out. Joab asked Amasa, Are you well, my brother? Then with his right hand, Joab grabbed Amasa by the beard to kiss him. Amasa was not on guard against the sword in Joab's hand, and Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it and spilled out his intestines on the ground. Joab did not stab him again, and Amasa died. Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichon, <coughs> So, we'll stop there for the reading, just for the sake of time, but you can, I recommend you go and read the full chapter later today to see uh, if, what eventually happens when they go and catch uh, Sheba. He's defeated, and then they return back to David. But if you've ever watched a, a TV series before, maybe one that you really got into that you're a fan of, you started watching it, and you watched uh, the first season, second season, third season, however long it went on, and after a while... <clears throat> You started to notice a pattern from watching this series uh, for so long and seeing all the episodes. You started to notice a pattern in it. You started to notice uh, how there was uh, a lot of similarities between the storylines of the episodes and the uh, arcs of the characters and the behavior of the characters and so on. You started to notice this pattern and you got to the place where of man. The sin nature and the loss compels them to do nothing else but to rebel against God. And for those who are Christians, who have been given a new heart, though our heart has, has been renewed, 
We've been given a new spirit by the Lord. We still wrestle with the flesh. And so even for the Christian, as we grow and as we advance in our sanctification, there will still be rebellion left in us. Unfortunately, sadly, tragically, the rebellion in our heart goes ever deeper and deeper and deeper. So the saint who has been walking with the Lord for decades, and who has been slaying sin, who has been repenting, and who has been reaching greater degrees of holiness for every sin that they kill, and, and, and sinful, wicked root that they dig up out of their heart, they find the root goes deeper still. Because the flesh and the fallenness of our world results in such a, 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 a uh, slavery to sin, rebellion will always be a feature on this side of heaven. To have rebellion in, in, uh, against God in our world, even among Christians, is not a fluke. It is a feature of our world that needs the return of our king. What this means for us is to watch out for rebellion in your heart. Watch out for rebellion in your own heart. Even if you are a Christian, a Christian who has been faithfully following the Lord for decades, for years, who has been serving the Lord, yes, even for you, watch out for rebellion in your heart. I'm not saying that you need to uh, turn into some sort of uh, you need to give yourself over to some sort of neurotic uh, navel gazing, right? And, and driving yourself crazy through self-introspection. That's not what I'm saying. But yeah, I'm saying through the word and in prayer, always be on the lookout. Right? Always be ready. And whenever sin presents its ugly head, slay it. Don't play with it. Don't let it uh, remain, but slay it. Like Sheba, we might rebel against God and break our covenants. We might act like a scoundrel as well. So watch your heart. There will always be those who desire a church that takes the Bible seriously, but then buck up against biblical authority. And who resist what the Bible says. Who resist the word that is preached faithfully from the word. From the, the word of God, the Bible. We might rebel against God's word. Therefore, rebelling against him, just like Sheba rebelled against God's word in opposing David. There will always be those who desire a vibrant community, but then are unwilling to commit themselves to that community in covenant to contribute to the health and growth of that community. Friends, watch out for this in your hearts. David has a new general, his top commander for all these years, ever since he was fleeing Saul in the wilderness, was a man named Joab, an excellent warrior, an excellent strategic thinker, but somewhat of an enigma, as we've said before, in a wild card. In this chapter that we come to, and, uh, and well, you, know, you can read this before, uh, we see that David decides to appoint a new general over his army. There could have been a whole a whole bunch of different reasons for him doing this. I'm not going to go into all of them right now. But he appoints a new general over his army, a guy named Amasa. Amasa was actually from, uh, was a part of Absalom's army. But he took him and now he placed him over his. Whenever Sheba starts this rebellion, David tells Amasa, all right, go gather the troops and end this. The longer this goes on, the worse it's going to get. We've got to nip this in the bud. Crush it now. And he says, I want you to get it done this amount of time. Well, Amasa, it doesn't say why. He doesn't get it done in that amount of time. He's either dragging his feet, he's having a hard time, or he's ineffective, whatever else. 
So then David says to Abishai, Abishai was a brother of Joab, and uh, but had, had always served as like a, a second in command under Joab. But notice, David is still not going to Joab. Instead, now he's going to Abishai. He says to him, okay, a mass is taking too long. I want you to gather my troops. So these, these are the most elite. These are the special forces of the armies of Israel. He says, take my troops and go. Try to connect with the mass if you can, but go and end this rebellion. And it's interesting what it says. David says to Abishai, take my troops and go. And then the text says, so the men of Joab went with Abishai to go find Amasa and to slay Sheba. It's interesting how it says that. The men of Joab in response. It shows a couple of things. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but it shows us a couple of things. It shows us, well, one, here's what David is ordering, but who are his men really more loyal to? They're described as the men of Joab. Who's the one in the army that even though he doesn't, at this point, he doesn't have the title, is still really able to throw his weight around and get his will and what he wants to happen get done? Joab. So it's a foreshadowing term. So they go, they find Amasa, and Joab, we've seen him do this several other times before, right? He tends to take matters into his own hands. He goes and he, uh, he, he cleverly, he, he acts like an assassin. He drops his sword, making it look like an accident, as he goes up to greet Amasa. And what he does, the, the text tells us in detail how he gets it done. Um, he uses his right hand to go and, and, and caress the face of Amasa. This was meant to disarm him, to let, have him let his guard down, because the right hand was the, typically the one that people would use in battle, that they would use to fight. It's also a gesture of being in one's favor. And so he goes, using his right hand, it specifically tells us, and it tells us that he grabs him by the beard. That doesn't mean a forceful grab. It means like a, a caress to embrace him as a friend. So she, uh, not she, but Amasa doesn't think anything of the sword that's now in his left hand. Joab, like I said before, he's, he's one of the special forces. In one strike, he's able to end Amasa right there and then now take control of the army again. Joab is now executing his own mini-coup inside of David's army. Not helpful, but he, what he's doing is this. He's taking a risk. He's making a gamble. He's assuming, if I can just take charge of this situation myself, you know, Amasa had already shown himself to be ineffective. David's frustrated with him. And so Joab sees an opportunity. He's an opportunist. He's clever. He's a, he's a strategist. So he recognizes, you know what? If I can get the job done, come back to the kingdom, tell David, hey, boss, everything's in order. You don't have to worry about it. Then he'll probably overlook what I did. He takes that gamble, and you know what? It works. It pays off. You read towards the end of the story, or you read after this, Joab returns, and David isn't necessarily thrilled that Joab's back, but he got the job done. Here's the interesting thing to note. We have the rebel Sheba, but we also have another rebel in David's kingdom, Joab. Joab rebels against David too. We previously looked at how Joab is willing to be insubordinate to David. We looked at this in the story of Absalom and whenever Absalom was slain in battle. We recognize how in that situation, Joab's insubordination was justified because what he was doing was in line with God's word. In this section, however, 
There's no justification. In this section, it's purely done out of self-interest. It's done out of him wanting to retain his position, of wanting to have control, and of being unwilling to be controlled. And so, in this situation, it is just simple rebellion. So we don't have one, but two rebels in David's kingdom. One from within, being Joab, and one from without, Sheba. So here's the second major point. Rebellion can threaten the kingdom from both within and without. Rebellion can threaten the kingdom from both within and without. There's a double rebellion in David's kingdom. There's Sheba, the rebel from without, who wants to dismantle David's kingdom, who wants to take David's throne, who wants to tear down David's kingdom as it exists. But then there's Joab, the rebel from within, who doesn't seek to dismantle David's kingdom and, or, or to depose David as king, and yet will not be controlled by David as king. Two rebels, very much two rebels, though they operate from different places and they are operating in different ways. There's a scholar named Dale Roth, Roth Davis, and he said this. He said, Joab is both intensely loyal, right? He never goes against David himself. He says he is both intensely loyal and completely uncontrollable. He does not raise the standard of revolt against David like Sheba, nor does he seek David's throne like Absalom. Joab is faithful to David. He does not try to become king and yet acts like his own king. He is extremely loyal to David, but essentially unsubmissive to David. Rebellions can happen against the kingdom from both within and without. It's easy for us to note the rebels and the Shebas who attack the kingdom from without, even today. Those who oppose and attack the church, the kingdom, from the outside of it, who would like to dismantle it, who would like to see it weakened or marginalized or silenced and so on. It's easy for us to point those out, but often it's not as easy for us to point those who are rebels from within, who don't necessarily seek to dismantle the status quo, who don't uh, seek open rebellion against God and their word, and yet in their lives will not be controlled by God's word. Yet in their lives are un, or, or, or finally unsubmissive to Christ as Lord. What this means for us in applying it to our lives is I think we should ask ourselves the question, are you holding on to control of your life? Are you like Joab in the church? You're in the kingdom. You're not launching any outright rebellion. You're not opposing the king uh, or opposing the kingdom, right? You're not opposing the church and trying to disrupt it or sow disunity, right? On, by all outward appearances, you might be a good member. And yet, there's still a part of you that is unwilling to be controlled by your king. Just like Joab was willing to remain in the kingdom, in his place, be a good soldier, but not be controlled by his king. We can see these spillover principles into the kingdom of God today. We have many that might acknowledge God's sovereignty and then yet disregard his will. Remember what Jesus said at the end of the, his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
The difference between those who say, Lord, Lord, right? Who are be, quote unquote, good soldiers who will look right on the outside, but in their lives and in their hearts be unwilling to give over control, to relinquish their sovereignty, and to let the Father's will be done in their lives over and against, if it's necessary, their own will. We need to watch out for this in our lives. Many of us might withhold control of certain aspects of our life from God. We've been good church members. We've been a part of the church, and maybe we've been, we, we, we've been serving. But yet still, there are parts of our lives, and there are parts of our hearts even, maybe, that whenever the Word of God speaks to it, whenever it is preached on, or whenever we are confronted by it in our, own, uh, in our lives, we withhold those parts. There's a little bit of Joab in us that's willing to be in the kingdom but not fully controlled by the king. We need to watch out for this in our lives. We close off our heart from the good doctor who would come in and perform surgery to cut out that sin, to cut out that need for self-control, right? a sinful form of self-control that is within us that would hold ourselves off, hold ourselves back from God the Father. Are there areas of your life that you are still acting like Joab? It can be in a lot of different areas for each and every one of us, just as we are individuals. It can be in the areas of our relationships, it could be in the areas of our finances. It could be in the area of even of our time and what we give our attention to. And how much of our, of our time and attention and energies we are willing to give over to God and his control. That he might do with it what he pleases and not just what pleases us. Are we withholding control of, uh, of our time in terms of our days and of our weeks? Are we withholding control and not giving God uh, the best of our time day to day in the word and in prayer, but instead holding control over it for ourselves to do with it what we want, whether it be whether it be our hobby, whether it be Netflix, whether it be whatever else? Are we giving over to the Lord control of our weeks when it comes to Sunday morning church attendance, when it comes to attendance in our Groups, whether it comes to uh, uh, fellowship with our covenant friendships and covenanted church members, growing and nurturing and, and giving ourselves to those relationships? Or are we unwilling to give over those times, those hours on a Sunday, those hours on a, on a Thursday night, a Wednesday, a Monday, whatever it is, over to God, saying, my time is yours to do what you will with it. Direct me where you want me. Not a little too many of us. We want to hold on to that control and do what pleases us rather than what pleases God the Father. It could be in our, could be in our sexuality. We have allowed ourselves to be controlled by and given over control of our lives, not to God the Father and our sexuality, but we've given it over to, to images and to people and to cultural narratives that tell us what, what, how, how we ought to enjoy it rather than how God directs us we ought to enjoy it there could be many many different areas of our life where we have a little bit of joab in us are you holding on to control of your life in a certain area do you have your heart closed off from the good doctor who would come in and cut out that sin that cancer that would take your life that would hold you back from christ and that would god forbid lead you down a road that would end with you hearing from Jesus, turn back from me, I do not know you. Look at Jesus. 
Look at Jesus and consider him who gave over complete control of his life to his Father's will. In, in, in every single moment of Jesus' life, there was never a time whenever he did something just to please himself or he did something just out of whatever he desired. But he always confessed that he was moving and living and speaking, not according to his own will, but according to the Father's. He confessed this over and over again. His whole life was given over to control by God the Father and then expressed in service to the people around him. He was perfectly obedient to his Father's will in his life. And because he was perfectly obedient to his Father's will in his life, he was also perfectly obedient to the Father's will in his death. Because of his obedience to God, it ended with him being crucified on a cross. Because he had given the control of his life over to the Father, it ended with his bloody execution at Calvary, with his suffering, with his humiliation, with his cursing, because he was obedient. You see, because of our disobedience, we deserve to hear, turn away from me, I do not know you. Because of our disobedience, we deserve to, to receive condemnation. We deserve to have uh, God the Father's wrath poured out upon us. However, because Jesus was obedient, and because for him, obedience meant death rather than life. For us, our disobedience, we have an opportunity for it to not end in our death, but for it to end in life for us. Because he who gave control of his life over to the Father died so that we who were retaining control, who were unwilling to give it over, who were, who were rebels, Shebas, Joabs, so that we might be turned into friends, so that we might be turned, and so that our, our heart of a rebel might be taken out and replaced with the heart of a child. So we might be, once who were orphans, now being adopted by the Father. So how can I give control of my life over to God? Whenever I am struggling to, whenever I'm afraid to, whenever I wonder, you know, I know what I want for myself in this area of my life, but I'm afraid to give it over to him because I'm afraid of what will happen if I let go of control. I'm afraid of what will happen if I let go of control of my kids. If I let go of control of my, uh, of my money, of my relationships, of my time, we have this consolation that because Jesus' obedience for him ended in death, uh, um, washing away the wrath of God for our sin, our obedience to him will only and always end in life and in blessing and in goodness. This doesn't mean that we are exempted from any short-term sufferings, disappointments, or so on. Yes, of course, those might still be. But we know that ultimately God's plan is for our good because it is grounded in the final work of Jesus Christ. This story closes a section, a major section in the life of David. Whenever you look over the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, you can see these large sections and these, these points that seem to to be a watershed that, that changed things, and that is this one for David's life. Really, according to scholars, everything after this is, is somewhat of an epilogue um, to the life of David. The kingdom of David, here at the end of chapter 20, at the end of this section, 
His, day, his kingdom is fragile, but it's still intact. It's weak and vulnerable, but yet it still exists. It's fragile due to the sin of the king itself, himself, as well as these rebellions. However, despite all of the damage that has caused the fragility that has come from both within and without, the kingdom is still standing. And here's where I want us to end on. The Lord sustains his fragile kingdom against the threats it faces. He sustains his kingdom. David's kingdom is still standing. It is still there at the end of chapter 20, not by David's own achievement. It is because of what David has done that it is in such a fragile state here. It is only by God's grace that his, his kingdom was still standing and that he was still king at the end of the day in chapter 20. Because God sustains his kingdom. This is both true in David's kingdom and it is also true in the kingdom of God today. So what this means for us is do not despair. Do not despair. Do you feel weak in your own life? Do you feel like a weak citizen in the kingdom? A weak soldier of Christ? Are you concerned for the state of the kingdom today? Concerned about the enemies from without? Who would oppose us? Who would silence us? Who would marginalize us? Are you afraid of the, uh, of the state of the kingdom because of the rebels from within? Who would corrupt it? Who would uh, lead rebelliousness and, 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 and lead people in uh, unsubmission to God? Are you concerned for the kingdom? Do you hold on to anxieties about the church, Redeemer City Church, or of the state of the church in general? Do not despair. Just as David's kingdom was sustained by the power of God, so Christ's kingdom is sustained by the power of his Father. Christ's kingdom is sustained by resurrection power. We might despair. We might have anxieties. We might look around at the state of our world, at the state of the kingdom, the fragility of the state of the church, and, and begin to worry, begin to be dismayed or discouraged. But friends, fall back on this. As long as Christ stands resurrected from the grave, we have no reason to despair. Because the power that raised him from the dead, that he, living today, the, the, the power of his life stands as an ongoing testament to. The power that raised him from the dead is the power that is sustaining his kingdom now. The power that raised Jesus from the grave, resurrection power, is the power that is living in you. That is living in you and is sustaining you throughout all of the attacks from without and from within. Whenever you feel fragile just as an individual citizen in the kingdom of God, Wherever you feel as though the state of your spiritual life is fragile and you have been fighting with the enemy within, sin and the flesh, and you have been fighting the enemies from without, and you begin to even despair of yourself, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is operating within you. The only reason to not experience it is to not open yourself up to it. It is there. It is operating in you. The Holy Spirit is in you and available to you. And he is ready to help you to slay sin. He is ready to help you to find peace that surpasses the world's understanding. He is ready to help you find courage in the face of opposition and in the face of difficult times. 
Resurrection power is there. The Holy Spirit is there. So that despite any corruptions, despite any, any opposition, the kingdom and the saints in the kingdom will continue to stand. As the magnificent classic hymn by Luther finishes, his kingdom is forever. Let us pray. Lord, would you encourage our despairing, weak hearts? Would you strengthen our doubting souls that so often begins to doubt and to wonder and um, have anxieties even about ourselves and our own ability to fight sin, to uh, continue walking in the light rather than in the darkness, to, um, to be persevering in good works and pursuing righteousness. Lord, encourage us that, that, that no, in and of ourselves there is no ability to, but in resurrection power, by the Holy Spirit that is at work in us, in cooperation with Him, we might pursue holiness and righteousness. We might kill sin. We might grow in the Christian virtues, Lord, and actually be a light as we walk in the light. We pray the same thing over the church and over the kingdom. Father, let us be ever sustained by and inspired by and find our peace and hope in the cross of Jesus Christ and see how his obedience led to death so that for the disobedient we might be offered life. Father, we pray this in the name of our King of our Savior Jesus. Amen.